Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. All right, well, welcome everybody. Good morning. Here we are, final sermon in the Kingdom of God series. It's been an incredible 11 weeks so far. I'm really excited that we've taken this time to build such a strong foundation of what God's overarching plan for redemption is throughout the Bible. Um, in the first sermon, Will gave an example of how the Bible is like a forest. And all the narratives and stories that we're familiar with are like branches or sticks or leaves, like they're small details within that larger forest. And the topic of the kingdom of God is like being in a drone and looking at the entire forest. Right? You get an idea of the whole layout of it, like all the trees that are within it and how they all fit together. Um, so we're really seeing like God's overarching plan of redemption, how all the books in the Old Testament, books in the New Testament, the prophets, how they all fit together um, and function together. So I'm not going to recap the entire sermon series up to this point. I think Will did an excellent job of that last week. So I would direct you to his, uh, his sermon from last week. You can find it on YouTube. Um, but I am going to talk about his sermon last week. So um, last week... Will talked about what our response is to the gospel. And we learned that there's a really simple answer to, to that question of what our response is, right? Yes. We change. We repent. And we learned that this change is not a one-and-done activity. Genuine change, genuine repentance, for someone who has accepted Christ is a continual process that pushes us to conform to Christ-likeness. And the way that I want to frame this week in relation to last week is that last week we talked about what our internal response is, and this week we're going to talk about what our external response is. We're going to see the answer to that question is just as simple. We change. We change the way that we interact with the world. But why do we need to change the way that we interact with the world? It's a good question, right? can take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We need to change because when we accept Christ and continue to be conformed to his image, our very identity changes. We're going to read in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. It says, Therefore, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So this was our previous state. We were separated from Christ, alienated from God's covenant people, strangers to the covenants of promise. We had no hope, and we were without God in the world. It's a pretty sorry state, right? But praise God, he doesn't end here, right? It continues into verse 13. It says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who, were far, who, were, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're going to skip to verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the, being the cornerstone. So this is our new state. We aren't strangers and aliens anymore. We are citizens of the household of God. These people in Ephesus who are getting this letter, they, they weren't to consider themselves primarily citizens of the Roman Empire anymore. We're not to consider ourselves primarily citizens of the United States anymore or whatever country you have citizenship with. The change that they underwent and the change that we undergo is a fundamental change in identity. Our identity isn't grounded anymore in 21st century Western culture. Our Lord has changed. Jesus is our Lord. Caesar was no longer their Lord. Our Lord is no longer the President of the United States, the government, the culture, ourselves. Our Lord is Jesus as well. And so our allegiance belongs to him. This is why we need to change how we interact with the world. So the main question that we're going to try to answer today is how do changed people live in an unchanged world? How do changed people live in an unchanged world? And the way that the Bible addresses this question is through the concept of exile, which is pretty interesting. Um, so we're going to take some time first to understand this concept of exile throughout the Bible and how the Bible uses it to answer this question of how changed people live in an unchanged world. The word exile in English is defined as prolonged absence from one's native country or a place regarded as home, endured by a force of circumstances or voluntarily undergone for some purpose. And we're going to see that the Bible uses this in both a literal and a metaphorical sense. My first car was a black 1996 Jeep Grand Cherokee Laredo that I bought from some, some friends of my parents. Uh, it was a V8, it got about 12 miles per gallon, <laughs> very, uh, not very efficient at all. Um, and it burned so much oil that I actually had to put in a quart of oil every time I filled up for gas, which was often. So it had its quirks. Uh, but I, I love this car. It was so special to me. Uh, I, didn't, I wasn't looking for the specific car, but once I got it, because it was made available to me, I, I loved it. But I'll tell you what, I never realized just how many Jeep Grand Cherokees there were on the road until I got that car. Um, and I, I know this happens sometimes when you, when you get a new car, right? You start to see it everywhere. But in this case, it was an extremely common car. I think they sold like one and a half million in the US. Super, super common. They, they had been everywhere and I just hadn't noticed them because I wasn't familiar with the car beforehand. So I had no reason to notice them. That's what this concept of exile is like in the Bible. It's all over the Bible, but most of us aren't familiar with it, or we have no reason to look for it, so we don't notice it. We don't realize how prevalent it is. So we can be on the lookout for words like exile, being dispersed, strangers, foreigners, aliens, wanderers. These are all over the Bible, and this is all exile terminology. Um, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, like all these stories, uh, Tower of Babel, all these have exile connotations. I'm not going to go through all of them right now, uh, but the main exile reference in the Hebrew Bible, the Old, the Old Testament, is, um, refers to the exiles of Israel and Judah into Assyria and Babylon. Um, so, well, we're just going to kind of pick up the story of the Old Testament with 
with Abraham, right? His offspring make it out of Egypt, which is an exile reference in itself. They wander in the desert for a long time. We're going to go super speed here. They establish Mosaic Covenant with God. They finally make it to the Promised Land. They have a series of leaders. They demand a king, so they get Saul. He doesn't work out, right? So they get David. Hooray, David. And then David's son, Solomon, builds a temple in Jerusalem. And everything's great until it's not. <laughs> After Solomon, the kingdom splits into two rival kingdoms and everything goes downhill. They have more bad kings than good kings. There's the northern kingdom, which is called Israel. It lasts for 200 years until the Assyrian Empire comes and attacks Samaria, the capital, and takes them into exile in 722 BC. They also tried to take Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, but failed at that, at that time. Um, so what these empires would do is they would, when they would take over a city, they would come in and they'd relocate all the people from that city across the empire. It was like a strategic thing that they would do to try to suppress revolt. So you had people that would, had grown up in Samaria or Jerusalem who were being taken out of their land to brand new, brand new cities, brand new cultures. So that's what happened in the Northern Kingdom, and that Assyrian Empire would eventually fall to the Babylonian Empire. In the Southern Kingdom, which is called Judah, they got attacked by Babylon, and in five, 586 BC, Babylon took out the city of Jerusalem. They burned the temple, they took tens of thousands of people away in chains, and relocated them across the empire, just like they had done in Samaria. So this event is, is referred to as the Babylonian Exile. And much of the Hebrew Bible is informed by this topic. Most of the prophets are either warning people about an impending exile, communicating to people who are living in exile, or communicating to people who are, have just returned from exile and are trying to find their way. So it's a, a theme that runs throughout the whole Hebrew Bible. Then in the New Testament, we see this theme co-opted and used from, from multiple different perspectives. We just read Ephesians 2, and we saw how Paul used this language to say that the Gentiles are now a part of the, fam the family of God, right? He said they're no longer strangers and aliens. That's exile language. They were once far off, but they were now brought near by the blood of Christ. In 1 Peter, we see that the Apostle Peter, who's writing to, a, to primarily Gentile churches in modern-day Turkey, we see that in, in the first chapter of Peter, he calls his readers, quote, elect exiles of the dispersion. And then in chapter 2, he calls them sojourners and exiles. It's such a prevalent theme in 1 Peter. It's really cool how it runs throughout that whole book. There's even an Easter egg at the end of 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 5, he basically says, uh, the church that's in Babylon says hi. And Babylon's an exile reference. Um, and he's not talking about actual Babylon, he's talking about Rome, but he's referring to it as Babylon. Um, so the audience of this, of this letter, of 1 Peter, were mostly Greeks who were literally living at home, right? A lot of these people hadn't been taken into exile. They'd grown up in these cities in, in the Roman Empire their whole life. They knew their neighbors, they, they knew their communities, they weren't physically living in exile. So in what sense were they exiles? They were exiles because this happened. 
that happened. Will shared this visual a few weeks ago in his Kingdom Power uh, sermon, and uh, this shows what happens in Ephesians 2. We change from a gray dot to a magenta dot. That's just a quick summary of Ephesians 2, gray dot to magenta dot. Um, we're not exiles from the perspective of the family of God, but we're now different than the world, right? We're changed people living in an unchanged world. We're citizens of heaven that are waiting for God's kingdom to be established in its fullness on the earth. We're waiting for what we see in Revelation 21, where heaven will fully merge with earth again, and we will truly be home. Heaven and earth will be one, it'll all be magenta, we'll be at home. But until that time, we're in some sense exiles, and we're to think of ourselves in some sense as exiles. So then that, that begs the question, how should we behave as exiles? How does that affect our behavior? You can take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. So Jeremiah was a prophet at the time of the exile into Babylon. And here in Jeremiah chapter 29, he's writing down a letter from God to the newly exiled Jews that had just been sent into Babylon. So we're going to see what he says starting in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All right, we're going to stop here for a second. Imagine that you're a Jew who has had your city, your capital, the place where your temple is, taken over by an evil empire who worships Marduk. That's the Babylonian, the main Babylonian god. They don't worship Yahweh. Your temple has been destroyed. You saw people you love get murdered by this empire. You were led out of the land that God had promised to your people. You were led out in chains. And you're now living in a refugee camp in Babylon. And then you get a letter from God. Praise God. What would you expect this letter to say? What advice would you expect God to give you about your situation, right? I think I would expect him to say something like, sit tight, I'm going to get you out of here. Maybe some directions for how to subvert and like, take out Babylon from the inside so we can get back to the promised land as soon as possible, right? That's not actually what we find. We're going to continue on in verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. This doesn't sound like what someone who's living in a refugee camp would be doing already, right? He's telling them to make this place their home and to build families. You don't plant a garden unless you plan on staying in a place for a while. I don't know, maybe, maybe Jason would. Uh, I, I think Jason would plant a garden if he was staying at a hotel for a few weeks like, in the parking lot. All right, let's continue on in verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Anyone know what this word welfare is in Hebrew? Shalom. 
It's the word that we just talked about in the Kingdom Peace Sermon. And it's much richer than just peace, right? I think welfare is a pretty good translation here. It's the complete well-being of the city. They were to seek the complete well-being of Babylon. They were to pray to Yahweh on behalf of Babylon because in the shalom of Babylon, they would find shalom. Let's skip over to verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So God is going to be faithful to them and bring them out of exile. And then we get here to to verse 11. This is a a very famous verse. You may have seen it on a coffee cup before. Maybe you've seen it written in a nice script font on a piece of reclaimed wood on a wall, maybe next to a live, laugh, love uh, (laughs) sign as well. Uh, But the context of this verse is exile. So it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, shalom, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I love what one pastor said about this whole section we just read in Jeremiah. He said, This is not a call to compromise, it's a call to participate. And the way that the Bible Project frames the ethic that's communicated here is that it's a mixture of loyalty and subversion. It's loyalty in that they are to seek the shalom, the well-being of the land. They're to pray to Yahweh on its behalf. But it's also subversion in that even though they were in Babylon and participating in Babylonian society, Yahweh was to have their complete allegiance the whole time something that the Babylonian king or the Babylonian gods would never have. They were to pray to Yahweh, right? Not to Marduk. He would be the one that would bring them out of exile. He was the one who provided them with a future and a hope. So when there was conflict between them following God's direction or the Babylonian king's direction, there was no question of who they were to obey. So what does this look like in in practical application. How do we participate but not compromise? How do we have the right balance of loyalty and subversion? I think the answer is that it takes a lot of wisdom. You can turn to Daniel chapter 1. So Daniel is the audience of Jeremiah's letter. He was brought into exile in Babylon from Jerusalem. It's possible he might have heard this letter or at least heard uh, the concepts that God was communicating through Jeremiah and taken this to heart. We're going to pick up here in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his, of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, 
and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Everything the king is doing here is specifically designed to assimilate Daniel and his friends into the Babylonian life and religion. It talks about teaching them the literature and language of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Um, same thing. The, the way that you would learn language and literature of a people at that time was you would often copy important religious texts. So Daniel would have been spending his days copying ancient writings about Marduk and the other Babylonian gods. One of the commentaries I read called this, quote, an induction into the worldview and culture of Babylonia. In verse 7, we see here that the king gives them all new names. And each of, what's interesting here is that each of their original names reference the God of Israel, and each of their new names references a Babylonian God. So an example is Mishael. In Hebrew, that means who is what God is. His name was changed to Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. Aku was the Babylonian moon god at that time. So the king is specifically trying to assimilate them into the Babylonian way of life, into the Babylonian culture, the Babylonian religion. And we're going to uh, continue here in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So we saw in the first, the first section that we read, we saw a few areas where Daniel did not draw a line in the sand. Right? He took the Babylonian name. He worked for Babylon. He read and copied pagan religious literature. He almost certainly wore Babylonian clothing. But we do see them draw a hard line in the sand uh, and refuse to defile themselves with the king's food here in chapter 1. And then in chapter 3, I think we all know the story of um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They take a stand there, right? They refuse to bow down and worship a golden image. And then in chapter 6, we see Daniel refused to abide by a decree that he was supposed to only pray to the king for, for 30 days. So we see some places where they don't draw a line and some places where they do draw a line in the sand. And I don't think that this specific example in Daniel is prescriptive. I don't think it's like a rule book for us to follow of what's okay and what's not okay. I think what we're supposed to take from this are, are two things. The first is that their primary allegiance was always to God. Worshiping images, and not praying to God, but praying to the king, those were out of the question. They would die for those things. But I also believe that they walked in wisdom. They didn't pick every fight on every secondary issue, like their name, the books they read, the clothes they wore. They picked their battles. You can turn to chapter 6 of Daniel. What we see here in, in chapter 6 is that the result of them walking in wisdom, of picking their battles, of knowing when to speak up and take a hard stand, the result of that is that God accomplishes unbelievable things because of this. 
verse 25 of Daniel 6 says, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. And I should have said that this is, this is after Daniel is, is saved from the lion's den. Right? So he just took a hard stand. He was going to die for it. God saved him. And here's what, here's what God accomplishes. Here's what King Darius wrote to the entire empire of Babylon. It says, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Now, would this have happened if Daniel would have showed up to Babylon and refused to take a Babylonian name or learn the Babylonian language or refused to wear the clothes? The answer is we don't know, right? And again, it's not prescriptive. I'm not saying we should do all of those things with our culture, but the point here is that they walked in wisdom and God accomplished amazing things because of, of that. All right, so back to the question of how exiles should act. Um, the Bible Project refers to this as the way of the wisdom warrior. I love that title. So we heard that exiles are called to participate, right? And remember, this is not a call to compromise, it's a call to participate. Exiles act with a mixture of loyalty and subversion. Loyalty because they seek the shalom of the land and pray to Yahweh on its behalf. But also subversion because their ultimate allegiance is always to God and never to the culture or political leaders of, the, of their land. And we saw in Daniel that they walk in wisdom and we walk by the Spirit as well. And that can look slightly different for everybody. But our goal is to walk in the Spirit and know when to pick our battles so that we can accomplish God's purposes. I want to read a quote from a theologian named Daniel Smith Christopher. I think this quote perfectly sums up this exile ethic that we've been talking about. He says, quote, The nonviolent peace ethic of the Hebrew exiles is a practice of radical doubt towards the self-proclaimed power and religion of the empire. It is rooted in a conviction that God's covenant people are the primary vehicle of God's work in, in the world and that the nation state is not the center of the universe. This is the ethic of the exiled Hebrew wisdom warrior, a nonviolent resistance based on the wise awareness that the empires of this age, despite their attempts to convince otherwise, are not of ultimate significance. Or in the language of Daniel's vision, they are dust to be swept away with the wind, while the mountain of God's kingdom stands forever. Uh, you guys can turn to Mark chapter 12. All right, so we've seen how Jews that were taken into Babylon as exiles should act. And now we're going to see that Jesus himself and his apostles applied and directed us to apply these same principles we just talked about. Mark chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
Should we pay them or should we not? All right, so Pharisees and Herodians are trying to trap him here. They're not asking these questions in good faith. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to make him go full loyalty or full subversion. Right? Either be a total sellout puppet to the Roman Empire or be a zealot, essentially. Zealots actually refuse to pay taxes to the Roman Empire. And we see his response here in, starting in verse 15, it says, But knowing their, their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So his response here has that mixture of loyalty and subversion, right? It's loyalty because he's honoring the emperor. He's paying his taxes. Caesar can have his money back. He's not causing a stir in this way. But do you see the subversion there? He says, render to God the things that are God's. What things are God's things? <laughs> yeah, is there anything that is not God's things? <laughs> no. I love what, what Jerry just said, because that coin might bear the image of Caesar, but what bears the image of God? Yeah, we do, right? We bear the image of God. So you can give Caesar back his coin, but you have to give to God your whole life. You can turn to 1 Peter. So Jesus exhibited this wisdom warrior response. And now we're going to see that the Apostle Peter, inspired by God, taught this same ethic in the book of 1 Peter. I mentioned earlier that there's a really strong theme of exile throughout 1 Peter. And remember in, in chapter 1, he, he says... Um, He's, he's writing to a list of mostly Gentile churches. These were mixed churches, but they were in modern-day Turkey. It was a huge Gentile area, so they inevitably had mixed groups of people there that were going to be hearing this. And he calls them elect exiles of the dispersion in chapter 1. And we see uh, this theme continue in verse 11 of chapter 2, which is where we're going to pick up. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So on the one hand we have loyalty, we keep our conduct honorable among the people. We're subject to the human institutions, including the emperor and the governor, both are distant and local secular leaders. We honor the emperor. But on the other hand, we have subversion. The reasoning behind all of this loyalty is not because those human institutions have inherent authority. It's because of our allegiance to God. 
We keep our conduct honorable so that they may see our good deeds and glorify God. We're subject to the human institutions because it is the will of God that our good works will silence the ignorance of foolish people. We honor the emperor, but we fear God. I want to read you a quote from the New International Commentary on the New Testament about this section. It says, quote, Submission to these people is guided by and limited by the phrase, on account of the Lord. The Lord in the New Testament is normally Christ. It is because Christ, not, not Caesar, is Lord that one submits. It is not that people such as rulers or masters have authority in themselves. On the contrary, they are only creatures of God. But the Lord gave an example of submission and the Lord wishes his teaching to be spoken well of. Both of these reasons will be expounded by Peter later. And therefore, for his sake, one submits. But this also limits submission, for submission can never be to anything he does not will. Okay, so back to our main question. How do changed people live in an unchanged world? We live like exiles, right? We participate. Last week, Pastor Will said that God wants us to have the maximum fun possible within the confines of what he set up. We shouldn't live like hermits while we're in exile. How are you going to be a light of the world if no one interacts with you or sees you? Right? We need to participate. But we participate, but we don't compromise. We live with that mixture of loyalty and subversion. We pay our taxes. We respect the laws of the land. Because we participate, we can actively seek the shalom, the complete well-being of the land. We pray to God on its behalf. And all this time, God gets our complete allegiance. Even the things we do that are loyal, like paying taxes, respecting the laws of the land, we do these for the Lord's sake. Nothing comes between us and our allegiance to God. And how do we do these things practically? We walk in wisdom and we walk by the Spirit. And the reason that we do these things is because we know that just like God promised in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11, that he's going to bring us back from exile. Jesus is going to come back and bring the kingdom of God in its fullness. Heaven is going to merge back with earth. There's going to be perfect justice, perfect righteousness, perfect love, perfect mercy, and perfect shalom. There will be no more war because the swords will have all been beaten into plowshares, into farming implements, right? God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, God's dwelling place will once again be with man on this earth, and, he, and we will be his people, and he will be our God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are so thankful. We thank you and we praise you for your faithfulness. God, we yearn for the return of your Son, and we yearn, we yearn for your kingdom to be established in its fullness. We yearn for that kingdom to come, God. We also yearn for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know it's not being done right now, God. Pray that you would work in us to do your will on this earth. 
to participate, to have that right mixture of loyalty and subversion. Help us to give you our complete allegiance, no matter what our culture, no matter what our governments might demand of us, God. We know that you have made us citizens of the age to come, citizens of the kingdom. We know that this earth in its current condition is not our home. We know that you will restore it, God. And therefore, we know that we're going to live as exiles until the glorious day of your son's return. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.